Welcome to all you curious minds out there. Thank you for tuning in to a brand new episode of Flying Chariots The Rise. Tonight we have the privilege of having Steve Cossey as our guest, author of the book The LBL Massacre. Stay with us as we unlock the tragic and chilling story of a brutal incident that allegedly took place in the land between the lakes. Picture this, guys. A family innocently exploring the peaceful countryside suddenly find themselves the victims of an unknown assailant. The aftermath is terrifying. Disfigured corpses and signs of an attack so strange that it makes your blood run cold. As witness reports starts to pile up, a mysterious figure emerges. The infamous Dogman. In tonight's episode, Steve Cossey takes us on a voyage through the pages of his book, revealing the painstaking research and harrowing details behind the LBL massacre. What really happened on that fateful day? Is the Dogman the herald of tragedy or is there more to this disturbing story? Let's find out, guys. My guest today, Steve Cossey, the author of the book LBL Massacre. Welcome, Steve. Hey. Steve, I know self-introductions can be a little weird, a little bit weird sometimes, but if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself and the things you do. Well, uh, I am uh, a resident of Dover, Tennessee, uh, which is near the land between the lakes where this uh, story in my book uh, occurred in the year 1982. And uh, when I first heard the story, I was uh, skeptical of it. Uh, I, I was an engineer my entire career. I'm uh, retired now, but uh, uh, I worked for CNN for many years. And uh, But uh, after hearing uh, and, and interviewing a couple of eyewitnesses, I now believe the story that I heard was probably very true. And uh, I have to credit a couple of people I've met over the last year, year and a half. And uh, these are credible witnesses. One of them is a retired law enforcement officer. And uh, he told me his story uh, about uh, an experience he had in this area of the land between the lakes. And uh, he's a very credible witness. And uh, there are several others I've interviewed that uh, have seen uh, things that should not exist in this particular area of the land between the lakes. And uh, the land between the lakes, to give you a little background about it, is the largest inland peninsula in the United States. Uh, it's bordered by Kentucky Lake on one side and by Barkley Lake on the other side. And a little background, uh, my father uh, <clears throat> uh, fought in World War II. I began to book with that. And uh, he was returning from Germany. He had been wounded in the hand with a German rifle grenade. And he was escorting two blind soldiers that uh, had lost their sight during the war back to uh, their states. And then he would get leave to allow his hand to, uh, to uh, heal up. And that's the way I begin this book. And he was literally... When he came back, the, the, the area had changed so much. They had flooded the, uh, 
rivers uh, in order to make this area. And he did not even recognize the place that he got off to uh, go back to his home. So he had to ask somebody on the bus, uh, literally where he got off. Fortunately, there was a young lady there that uh, knew where he got off and where his uh, mother had moved to since he'd been over uh, overseas. And he hadn't been he hadn't been back to this area since 1939. Uh, he had been maneuvering and joined uh, joined the army earlier. Uh, and I believe it was uh, August of 1939, and had been maneuvering. And then the wars broke out. Of course, uh, Japan uh, uh, bombed Pearl Harbor, and he immediately be, uh, became involved. But he uh, spent his time in the European battlefield uh, in North Africa and Germany. And after North Africa, he trained uh, troops for what would be uh, the D-Day invasion. Uh, but uh, he did not even recognize his uh, his area when he came back. That's how much this area had changed. Uh, he went from living close to a river that was maybe uh, one kilometer wide to a lake that was uh, over five kilometers wide. And you can see how that would confuse somebody coming back, trying to uh, make their way back home. There's a few people out there, and I'm one of them, that have never heard of the LBL massacre. So please, if you want, fill us in, in to the story and how you came across. Sure. I first heard the story uh, back in... Uh, 1998 uh and uh this is my book it's called the lbl massacre and uh the story i heard was that uh there was a family killed in the upper peninsula now the upper peninsula would be in the kentucky area uh this this uh area is so large it encompasses part of kentucky as well as the state of tennessee And uh, as the story goes, uh, there was a family that was uh, killed uh, that had been camping up in the Upper Peninsula. Now, this family was not simply killed. They were literally massacred. The father's uh, arms had been pulled off. Uh, he had been bitten. Uh, he had been uh, severely clawed. There was uh, blood all over the outside of the camper, and there was blood all inside the camper. Uh, and there seemed to be a human-like hand mark inside of the camper that scraped down where the uh, uh, with blood. But it seemed to be human-like, but at the same time, it, it had clawed the inside of the uh, camper. So here we have some very unusual marks inside this camper that don't appear to be made by any known animal. Uh, it is said there were six corners on the site of this grizzly scene. One of these corners was a regional corner from Memphis, Tennessee, uh, which is about 200 miles away from this area. Now, it's very unusual to have six corners uh, on the site of a uh, uh, of any kind of murder or anything. Uh, I later learned by a retired law enforcement officer, if they were going to call in a regional uh, coroner, uh, he would be from Memphis, Tennessee, because Memphis, Tennessee covered the southern Kentucky area as well as the uh, 
Western Tennessee area. So that kind of corroborates my story to some extent because uh, not your average person would know that a coroner would come all the way from Memphis, Tennessee, about 200 miles away to, to this scene. Uh, the father was found outside the camper, uh, and the uh, mother and uh, daughter were found in, or excuse me, the mother and the son were found. Uh, the son was found, as I heard it, just outside the camper door, uh, apparently trying to get back in. The mother was found inside the camper, and she had been literally torn to shreds. Uh, after a little bit of investigation, the deputies on the scene uh, come to the conclusion there was yet another family member. Uh, they had uh, observed the three family members that were slaughtered there at the camper, but they found dresses that would only fit a young girl about nine or ten years old. So the uh, people on the scene, which at this time, the deputies, I think, were the first to arrive, uh, but uh, ambulances and rescue squad. I don't know whether you have rescue squads in Germany, but we have volunteer units that uh, go out and look for people. And uh, they were uh, observing all these little girl clothes that were in the back bedroom. So they assumed that there was a young girl that was with them. So they started a, a search. They started spreading out with law enforcement. And uh, one of these deputies had only gone, uh, the story I heard was about 100 yards or a little bit less, which would be about an American football field uh, in length, until uh, the other, uh, the two deputies. Uh, that were accompanying them, uh, accompanying them, excuse me, one of them felt uh, blood dripping on his hat. Uh, and uh, he didn't know where it was coming from. So he looked up and he saw this little girl about 30 feet in the air. And she had been, as, as, as I was told the story, eaten on. Some people say she was disemboweled. But uh, she had obviously been slaughtered and something had been eating on her and taking chunks out of her. Uh, it was uh, probably, as I heard the story, around 3 a.m. when uh, federal authorities moved in. These weren't local authorities. These were federal authorities. And they told everybody not to speak of what they had seen. Do not talk about this incident. And uh, through some other witnesses that were accounted to me, uh, the military came in and uh, there were military units on the scene. There were uh, uh, military armament, uh, just military equipment. Uh, it's not certain exactly which uh, organization this was. Uh, we don't know whether it was the 101st Airborne, which is very close to that area. They have a base there or we don't know whether it was some other military unit that that was uncertain because these uh it was probably some special forces unit because the gentleman that talked to me said they didn't know the military because there weren't many markings on these uh on these jeeps and these trucks that they brought in uh some of the law enforcement uh officers that had been uh told to leave uh, they were told to close the park 
and 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 put uh, patrols on the perimeter which they did and i can confirm that the park closed during this period of time because i ran a bait shop at the lower entrance uh to the land between the lakes and i had several of my customers uh come back and tell me or ask me stop in at my bait shop and say uh ask uh, if i knew why the park had closed uh they were carrying their boats and uh I said, no, I have no idea uh, why it's closed. It was more than one, so I'm sure the park was closed. And, of course, uh, you know, this was uh, in 1982. I can't remember the exact date because this was 40-some-odd years ago, but I do remember it was in the spring. I believe it was in the month of April early, uh, which is pretty much uh, what most of the people who have recounted the story say. It was around approximately April 9th. Uh, or April 7th, uh, 1982. Uh, so these officers on the perimeter of the park started hearing automatic gunfire. Uh, it was in the morning sometimes, several automatic weapons going off. And uh, they still kept the park closed, as they were told. They, uh, they were turning people around that were attempting to enter the park. Now, keep in mind, this is a very large park. They had to close it on the Tennessee end, uh, which is approximately uh, 30, 30 to 35 miles south. And then they had to close it on the upper end. And any roads leading into the park, they had to close. Uh, some of the uh, Department of Natural Resources, uh, this is the story I heard it, uh, as I heard it, uh, officers were allowed back in uh only a few but i think it leaked out a little bit i'm not certain if my story came indirectly from law enforcement i would assume it had to have uh but uh as they were allowed back in they were a couple of them were taken over to help identify a creature that had been killed uh they were loading this creature onto the back of what's known as a deuce and a half military truck uh it's a two and a half ton truck, and I have a picture of it in my book as well. And uh, this truck is uh, approximately 12 foot long. The witnesses say the creature took up the better portion of this uh, truck. Uh, now, I assume they were pulling it because they, they said they witnessed eight soldiers loading this thing onto the truck, uh, which means it was a massive creature. It was very heavy. Uh, I assume that its arms were spread out like this, and it was probably more in the area of nine feet, is what I'm assuming. I'm assuming they took, uh, they were assuming the arms took up the uh, upper portion where it bordered to the back of the truck there, but I don't know that. Uh, but it was a very large creature. Uh, the exact size is unknown. It was, uh, they had brought these DNR officers back on the scene to help try to identify what this creature might be. Uh, it was, had a very foul odor. They literally had to cover their mouths and noses with it uh, because it was so foul. And uh, it had the head of a dog, a very large dog, about two or three times the size of a normal dog. Uh, it had clawed hands. Uh, it had clawed feet. And uh, they had tracked, the military had tracked this creature to a dugout cave. 
and uh, where they had engaged it uh, with automatic weapons. A, a large portion of the creature's upper body was was blown out because they had hit it with so many rounds. Uh, but the uh, witnesses on the scene said several of the deputies, several of the law enforcement and everything, when they first came to the scene of the camper, were throwing up. The, the, the foul odor that this thing had left in the camper was so foul that uh, they had uh, literally uh, thrown up, which is unusual for law enforcement and medical people. I once was an EMT myself. Uh, you have some pretty horrific car crashes in the United States, uh, some of them which are pretty bad. And I have been to a couple of them myself, which were pretty bad. And I've never seen any law enforcement throw up. But it could be that the odor that this creature had left in the, uh, in the uh, camper was strong enough to where it just literally made a lot of people on site sick, uh, and the odor was described as the smell of death. Uh, so it was not a pleasant odor. That's a crazy, crazy story. Um, so can, do you have more details about the investigation that took place? These are the only known details that I was told in the story. This story happened over 40 years ago. Uh, it's surprising that the details have remained very close uh, in all the other stories and the research I've done uh, in order to make this book. I did as much research uh, trying to learn as many details as I could. Now, there are variations in small details about the story. Uh, some people say that uh, it was on a different date, a slightly different date. Some people say that it was a particular kind of camper. Uh, my understanding was that it was not a self-propelled camper. It was a towed camper, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, they had pulled it in with a vehicle. Uh, there is one gentleman that claimed been there through the massacre. Uh, I'm not saying that I doubt him. I listen to every story, and his story is circulated online, uh, and he claimed to have been there, and he escaped by crawling under the vehicle, and this was a self-powered uh, camper uh, and uh, hiding under the drive shaft as, as the creature was attacking. Uh, I, I give everybody credibility. I don't know whether his story is true or whether his story is related to another story, which may have occurred there as well. There may have been one more than one attack. I have several uh, sub-stories uh, in my book that uh, validate this story uh, leading up to it. Several eyewitness accounts of encounters with these creatures before and after the actual massacre that was assumed to have occurred in 1982. One of them includes a retired law enforcement which uh, officer, which I'm very good friends with. He has his own book out now, and I'm going to show you that book here in just a minute, because on the front cover of this book, he is one of the few people that was surrounded and attacked by these creatures that actually survived. He was armed. 
he was a deputy sheriff in another county close to to the land between the lakes and he and his partner which also was a deputy sheriff were able to fire off some rounds and run these creatures off or at least delay them until they jumped into their truck and took off and the book i'm going to show you is uh, written by mr martin groves who i've interviewed personally uh, a very trustworthy honest uh and credible retired law enforcement officer and he had an artist a very good artist uh, uh render the front cover of his book uh, so that you can get his eyewitness account of what these creatures look like. And this is the the creature that uh, surrounded him, one of several, and uh, attacked him. Uh, he was, as I said, he was able to get off a few rounds and run this creature off, scare it long enough to where they could jump in their truck. He was uh, in the land between the lakes area. He was turkey hunting. One thing he told me he did not put in his book is he said this creature uh, almost communicated to him in a telepathic way, uh, telling him that I'm going to kill you and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, but he felt like he was literally in shock uh, seeing this creature because, I mean, literally, if you see something like this that should not exist, Naturally, it's going to scare you. Uh, as a matter of fact, his deputy partner, partner had a stroke during this incident, and he was never able to work again as a, as a deputy. And uh, it, it scared him so bad. But they fired off, uh, his, his friend fired off a, a double-barrel 10-gauge shotgun at these things. And Martin pulled his pistol and shot several rounds at him. That scared him and ran him off for long enough to jump on the back of the truck and they literally were chased out by these creatures. It's credible eyewitnesses from a retired law enforcement officer like this that leads me to believe that the story I originally heard was true. And uh, do I know these creatures exist? No, I have not seen one, but I have talked to many credible eyewitnesses uh, that say that these creatures do exist. They have seen them. Now, a lot of people say that, well, was this creature actually some kind of a uh, DNA experiment by the military, which was developed by the military? There's one major flaw in that theory. Now, whether the, you know, and I'm not one for conspiracy theories. If I hear a story that I think is true, I will tell it. But in the 1600s, uh, when uh, French settlers were first moving into this area, even before it became the United States, the Shawnee Indians had given a warning to the French settlers, do not go into these areas. Uh, and they told them the particular areas, which were mainly in Kentucky. They said, do not go into these areas. Uh, and these trappers uh, ignored it. Uh, not all of them, but some of them ignored it because they thought, well, you know, maybe there's really a great trapping area in here where we're going to get a lot of uh, beaver pelts and, and everything. They were never heard from again, some of them that went in. Some of them I have heard uh, that they found their mutilated bodies. Uh, and uh, the Shawnee Indians 
through French translation, this was translated into Lugaru, which translates into Wolfman. So these creatures have been around a long time. Uh, uh, they are in this area. Uh, it's not, I believe these creatures having the senses of wolves, obviously they do because there's several eyewitness accounts of these creatures uh, sniffing the air, smelling the air like a dog would or a wolf would. I believe these creatures are in there. I don't think they attack very often. Uh, but uh, I think their senses are strong enough. A, a, a wolf has 100 times the smelling ability of a human being. So these creatures are going to be around, and you're not going to ever see them. They're going to—they're very—they're masters of disguise. Uh, they blend with the wood, just like the uh, purported Bigfoot sighting uh, that you have. Bigfoot is rarely seen. Uh, because he, he knows you're there long before you know he is there. And I believe this is why uh, there are sightings of these creatures. There's very little video evidence of them, uh, but it does exist. There are some captures of these creatures, but they're usually, much like Bigfoot, they're blurry images or images talk, uh, taken by somebody that was... Uh, uh, literally shaking with their camera. In in Europe, we would call it the werewolf, but it's somewhat different from the wolfman, I guess, but or the dogman. Um, but the werewolf also is an experiment, according to folklore. So, it's it, it could be. And I heard, I heard the story of a guy. And I think it's on Linda Moulton House channel. I heard it on Linda Moulton House uh, YouTube channel. And she told the story of a guy who drove on the road and he heard the sound. His windows were open, passenger side window was open, and he heard the sound. And suddenly, yeah, a dogman appeared <laughs> alongside his car and it ran alongside his car and stuck his head in into the window and tried to grab him. And then while driving he shot the creature and it fell down and and uh, was on the floor and a few miles uh, after that he changed his mind and he stopped and he turned around to see if this uh, thing was dead or still there and he drove by and he saw two or three guys standing there and a police car and an unmarked car and he stopped and said and, and told them what happened and these guys appeared to be angry <laughs> angry about what he did so That was his impression. He, he said, man, these guys are somewhat angry about me. I don't know what happened. <laughs> But um, that led him to believe that this creature, and he heard stories, of of course, after that he heard stories that these creatures are, like you said, could be an experiment by the military or by the government. So I'm not sure what to think about the dog man. And I... I first heard about the Dogman a few months ago, to be honest, um, from a guy who was doing Bigfoot research. And he told me about the Dogman and told me how he has this uh, footprint uh, that he found in the woods. And I thought, could this be real? We're talking about a werewolf-like thing. So it's it's crazy. It's crazy, yeah. Try to wrap my mind around, but um, it seems it like... 
it is hard to wrap your uh, mind around something like this because, you know, it's a creature that should not exist and apparently does. Uh, once I said, uh, once I had uh, said earlier, I, there are too many credible witness, uh, witnesses that I have interviewed. And I have also seen Linda's story. Very good. Seems like a very credible gentleman that, uh, that tells about this incident uh, inside his truck. Uh, now, whether there has been manipulation with the DNA uh, with these creatures, I'm not sure. I can't say. I don't have any, uh, you know, other than the credible, uh, apparently credible or seemingly credible witnesses, uh, such as uh, what Linda had interviewed with this gentleman. Uh, I think he's telling the truth. You can more or less look at a person and when they recount their story, you can you can kind of tell whether this is made up or not by, in my opinion, by the way they, uh, they're, by the way they talk to you. And, uh, so I, I, I believe this gentleman, I believe he had an encounter with it, whether this is a manipulated DNA creature. Uh, I think that's possible. I mean, if you sit and consider this would, uh, and one, one thing I put in my book is if, if they are, uh, DNA manipulated, uh, you would not want these creatures to be thrown on your position in a military situation. I mean, the, the sheer awe and shock factor would would be enough to have several soldiers killed and uh, not uh, let alone, you know, trying to eliminate the threat. Uh, there is DNA evidence of Bigfoot, uh, and I, I uh, uh, list this in my book a couple of times. There have actually been what is called environmental DNA samples taken. Uh, one of them was taken up uh, at an island that's uh, off Alaska uh, in the uh, northern uh, the Alaskan territory. And uh, they had actually put out a screw trap or a nail trap uh, and uh, set it in front of this cabin and uh, I credit uh, this to Monster Quest uh, in my book. I have reference to their their story. Uh, and they thought it was a bear that was breaking into this remote cabin. The only way this area could be accessed is by plane or boat. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have any bridges or anything to it. It's literally an island. But a lot of people like to bear hunt there. But they initially thought this was a bear that was breaking into their cabin. Uh, but uh, there were differences in it. Uh, the bears usually tear into a refrigerator with their claws because uh, there are certain materials inside of a refrigerator that attract a bear. Uh, the insulation in it has a smell that they perceive as food, and uh, but that was not done. Things were just tossed around in here. I mean, literally picked up and tossed around. So they set one of these traps and something set on uh, something stepped on it and they were able to get DNA samples from it. Uh, it came back as 99.8% human with two ape markers in it. Uh, now it is not possible to have 100 uh, to have 98% human DNA. It's either 100% DNA or it's something else. Uh, it's not possible even with contamination to get uh, something that has a percentage of human DNA and a percentage of ape. Uh, 
Uh, now you can contaminate a DNA sample and it just comes out human. But uh, this, this DNA was sequenced several times in order to pull out the markers, but two of them were eight markers. And not only that, there's environmental DNA, uh, which has been gathered in the Northwest of the United States, which comes back with the same readings. Uh, basically 99% human, 99.8, excuse me, uh, but uh, eight markers. So I don't think it's a stretch to assume if that we have DNA evidence of Bigfoot that there might not be other creatures such as dogmen, uh, which are similar to humans, uh, but obviously dog-like. Now, the other interesting thing about this, there have been witnesses, one of them I consider a credible witness, uh, that recorded the speed of this creature on all fours. They stand up, and a lot of times they attack on two feet, but they run very fast like a dog on four feet. One gentleman clocked this with the equipment he had available, clocked one of these creatures at 47 miles an hour. Now, obviously, uh, and uh, what is that, about 56 kilometers per hour in that range, roughly, uh, you're not going to escape a creature that runs that fast if he decides to prey on you. Well, did you ever talk to a military witness or law enforcement witness that have actually been there? No, I have not. I cannot, uh, and I'm not going to tell a fib by saying I did. My my story was strictly secondhand. But the witnesses I have interviewed, some of them are, are law enforcement officers uh, and ex-law enforcement officers, should I say. Matter of fact, all of them were ex-law enforcement officers. Uh, they, uh, they lend credibility to this. And as I said, Martin Groves is one who I consider a very, very credible witness. And the fact that he saw one of these creatures up close, uh, it, it is a, is a big plus. As a matter of fact, uh, he goes, uh, into different areas in the United States and talks at, uh, the different conferences they have such as Bigfoot or Dog Man. But as far as military, no, I cannot say that I have. Besides these stories that we just heard, what makes us so sure that these injuries on these uh, killed people are not inflicted by a bear or let's say a mountain lion or something like that? That is a very good point. And uh, one of the uh, uh, things that the coroners noticed on these bodies was, and as a matter of fact, one of the deputies, as I had heard the story, had asked the one of the coroners, is this the work of a bear or is this the work of a, a wolf? And this coroner had just shaken his head and didn't say anything else. But one of the coroners, had noticed in one of the father's arms, there was a dark fur. This fur was later analyzed and uh, it, it came back an unknown hominid. Uh, the closest uh, 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 match they could find was wolf. Uh, the second thing is the coroners, the reason there were so many of them on the scene is the father had claw marks and uh, the mother was mutilated 
worse than the father is what I'd heard. But the uh, the father had claw marks on the back of his uh, back, which were an opposing thumb. There is uh, bears do not have opposing thumbs. Uh, they're more a rounded track, a uh, rounded claw print like this. Wolves do not have opposing thumbs. These were a, pose, uh, a hand with opposing thumb that had claws extending out of it, and it raked the back of the father's uh, back down. Uh, there is no other creature other than a human, with maybe some kind of claw device or something on that would do this, but there is certainly no human that would have the strength to bite and rip the arms off of a person. And uh, not only that, I forgot to mention, uh, the door had been, was locked from the inside, they determined on this camper. It had been pulled open and was only hanging on one hinge. So this creature had literally ripped one hinge off uh, to get in at the mother and the uh, daughter. So there are several factors from the scene, as I heard it, uh, that indicated, no, this was not any kind of, uh, of known animal, uh, such as a bear or a wolf. If, if that would have been a human with something something like a claw device, as you, as you named it, those bodies were scattered around in a, in a I think, in a wider distance you you would have found them in a, in a wider distance and, and not uh, all together but you what made me curious is the the body of the little girl you, you told me that it was found up in the trees and that's somewhat strange i think it's strange for for a human and it's strange for a dog or a wolf to um pull his prey up in the trees That's strange. This is why yeah. I thought about, I don't know, if mountain lions do something like that or big cats. I think big cats sometimes do that. But I'm not familiar with uh, their behavior. So this is why I thought about some kind of a, a mountain lion or something or a big cat. Yes. Uh, cheetahs are known to, uh, uh, in Africa, are known to carry their, uh, and, and I mentioned this in my book, it's kind of like a cheetah dragging its uh, uh, prey up in the uh, tree so it can be peacefully fed on. Uh, a mountain lion, yes, but uh, a mountain lion would not explain the claw marks that were found on the uh, bodies. Uh, a mountain lion is a very distinguishable mark, and it doesn't have an opposing thumb. Uh, which is really, uh, and a, a mountain lion would not be able to open a camper and rip the door off uh, to where it was hanging on one hinge. Uh, but cheetahs do, uh, I think uh, leopards do. Uh, there are black panthers, which is a variation. Uh, now, now, wildlife management authorities don't acknowledge him being in this area, but I actually saw one when I was a child. Uh, I used to live in the land between the lakes before this area was cleared out. Uh, they, they uh, in 1963, they moved all the residents out. My father had just retired from the army in 1960. He had fought in Germany and Korea. And, uh, 
so we had lived there about two years and we had to move to a small town close to here named Clarksville, Tennessee, because uh, they literally moved everybody out and made this a, a wildlife area. Uh, I have been told by a credible witness uh, that would know, and I'm not going to mention his name, but the original reason they cleared the residents out of this area was they were going to build a nuclear breeder reactor in this area, which would require two uh, the rivers for cooling, a large one. But that for some reason, that plan was dismissed, and this became a recreational area. Uh, whether that is true, I don't know for certain. I've just been told by somebody that I believe uh, that had would have had direct knowledge of the uh, of the fact that this might have that that is the original reason they they uh, uh, by what's called eminent domain uh, took this area, and uh, so the 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 strange thing about this is there are there is hunting there i mean it's a beautiful area it's probably one of the most beautiful wild areas if not the most beautiful wild area in the united states uh there is hunting in there this is the way we get these witness stories is such as martin grove who was turkey hunting in there when this thing attacked him uh or these things attacked him uh and uh he was very lucky to escape. He's probably one of the few witnesses to escape an attack by these things. These things, if they decide to prey on you, they don't leave witnesses. Uh, they leave bodies. They leave bodies that are eaten on. Now, another story in my book, uh, which is also in Martin Groh's book, because he was connected to this story because he had actually met this gentleman the day before that was killed by this creature is this gentleman was bow hunting uh, for turkey. And I know that sounds strange, but some people do bow hunt for turkey. And uh, his body was found about 150 to 200 yards from his tent, which had claw marks in it that had been ripped open and his body was partially consumed. And uh, Martin had met this gentleman the day before he had his experience. And, uh, or at least uh, uh, he's certain of it because he identified the man's truck because he had gone back to report this to the authorities down there. So, yes, there are Black Panthers there, but Black Panthers uh, cannot drag a 200 pound man 200 yards. Uh, they will more or less eat them on site and they may drag him a few yards uh, if he's not too heavy, if it's a small, to, to make your point of the young girl, which probably didn't weigh, she's 10 years old, she probably weighed 40 or 50 pounds, maybe 60 pounds, depending on her stature. Uh, but, uh, it would be a struggle for them to even drag a creature uh, up 30 feet into the air like this. Uh, these these dogmen are known to have claws that are anywhere from two to three inches long. So it's very easy for them, particularly since they run like dogs, they kind of behave like dogs to easily climb a tree because of the fact of their claws. Uh, now, an ordinary dog cannot climb a tree because uh, it's... it's uh, Walls are not long enough to grip around the tree. And uh, if you've ever seen a dog try to climb up a tree, it'll just set 
and and pull bark down like this. This thing, as large as they are described to be, is able to grip a tree and easily climb up it like a pole. So, uh, and it probably had this young girl in its mouth. Now, as I said, I, I, I was not there in 1982. I cannot attest for the exact credibility of this story, but this story has been told more than once. And uh, there are other credible eyewitnesses. One of the uh, credible eyewitnesses is a young lady in Grand Rivers, Kentucky. Now keep in mind, this was 1982. There were no cell phones. There were only landlines. Uh, the, the couple that discovered the site went into Grand Rivers, which is only about uh, three to four miles uh, from where it's a, it's a very small town uh, now. And in 1982, it was probably even smaller and stopped at a convenience store there and called. Uh, or I stopped at uh, a telephone, uh, a pay telephone. I, I'm not sure if it was at the convenience store, but it was around that area. And uh, called the deputies in. They refused to go back in to the land between the lakes, and they rented a motel. They would not go back in, but they gave directions for these deputies to this camp area. And uh, they were literally shaken to the core. Uh, now, the young lady had uh, later uh, talked uh, to these two deputies, which this young lady is very credible. She did her own book, uh, and uh, her name was Dan Thompson. Uh, and uh, from I have never met her, but from everything I've read uh, in her book and everything, it seems to match up with the story I had heard. Now, uh, but... My understanding is that uh, her, either her grandfather or father was sheriff of this area at that time. And she, uh, she describes these deputies stopping into the store and they are literally, one of them's throwing up. And they're both uh, literally, she can tell something has happened to them. These were the deputies that were on the scene of this camper. And they slowly but surely begin to tell her what they had seen. And uh, this young lady is also a credible witness. Uh, she is deceased now, uh, but she has written a book. Her name is Jan Thompson. Back to the original story. You told us that these bodies were mutilated, of course, and the father had his arms ripped out, so crazy injuries. But do we really know how they died? I mean, did they die from the blood loss or... Was there a, a bite uh, wound to the neck or something like that? There were bite wounds all over these victims. I forgot to mention that. I apologize. There were deep bite wounds on these victims. Uh, and uh, uh, some of them, I'm sure, were in shock before they died. Uh, but uh, the overwhelming cause of the, uh, uh, of the death was blood loss. Mm -hmm. Yes, blood loss would have been it. I'm sure some of them were in shock before this happened. Uh, the mother, as related to me, uh, now, I do I know this for a fact? No, I don't. There is supposedly, and I have been told by a credible retired law enforcement officer, there is a record of this family's uh, death 
in one of the Kentuckys in count uh, in Kentucky. It's called Lyon County, Kentucky, where this event took place. There is a record, a written record of this. But uh, I think more than one uh, retired law enforcement officer may have tried to access this or somebody tried to access this. And they say, if you attempt to access this record, you'll be met with with a, a large amount of condemnation and uh, will not be allowed to look at the records uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and I'm sure that would give the exact cause of what killed these uh, these people. But overwhelmingly from the amount of blood that was in the camper, on the camper and around the camper, I'm sure with claws two inches to, to three inches long, I'm sure they hit arteries uh, I used to be an EMT myself uh, with the rescue squad back years ago as a volunteer. I'm sure they hit arteries. Uh, these would bleed out a person within minutes. And uh, so not to mention the sheer shock factor of having to deal with something like this that should not exist. Do you think that this creature back then killed, let's say, purposeful or goal-oriented so it, it knew that they were there and went there in for the kill or what do you think uh i believe that this creature from what i uh had heard uh and uh from what research i've done i i don't i can't go into the mind of this creature But this was one of the first campers that was on the scene. Uh, it was fairly early, and I think they had wanted to get in and get a premium spot. The other thing about this campsite that I'd like to mention is, and I was up there just recently, this campsite, and I, I have pictures of it, had paved roads. Uh, it would be asphalt roads, what we call asphalt roads, uh, which is... Uh, not uh, pre the the premium uh, pavement that you'll see on like an interstate, but yet a, uh, you know, a covered road. Some people also call these crusher run roads, but they're, uh, they're, there's another term for them, and it kind of slips my mind at this time. There are evidences of where a bulldozer just came along and scraped all this out for all the buildings down. There were restrooms there, obviously. You can see the, the, uh, foundations, concrete foundations where these were. This this campsite was literally erased. Uh, it, it, you would think if there was some reason for monetary or whatever that they would simply close this uh, this camp area, you know, put locks on it, leave the bathrooms there and everything. This, this, this campsite was erased. It was simply those, uh, a bulldozer pushed it off. But there is evidence there you can see where this where it was. Now, some people have speculated, this is strictly speculation, that since they were probably the first or second person on this campsite scene and everything, this creature got mad at him because he thought this was his territory. And uh, I have a theory also, and it, it kind of correlates with... Uh, Some of my uh, other researchers that uh, are looking into this, one of them being Martin Groves, as I had mentioned earlier, that these creatures may not bother you if you don't put up a tent or put up some kind of structure. If they think they're trying to move into your territory, 
their territory, excuse me, uh, then they see that as a threat. Uh, I think that's probably a valid reason why this creature may have attacked them. Uh, it may have said, no, this is, this is not yours, this is mine. Because during the winter periods of month, there would be nobody there. Nobody would be in the uh, this area during the winter. But if you're one of the first or two campers that comes out there and, you know, literally pulls a camper in and starts chopping firewood and uh, uh, creating a camping situation, as all of us know that have been camping, uh, then uh, I, th I think this creature may have seen that as a threat to his environment. That is my personal theory. Obviously, I can't go into the mind of this creature. Of course. <clears throat> but... To be more specific, maybe, do you think it's possible? Of, of course, we don't know. We, we can only speculate. Do you think that these beings are, could be, let's call it remote controlled, or are they instinct driven? Or what do you think? How intelligent could they be? I believe they are very intelligent uh, because Martin Grove, uh, as I indicated, in his book and everything. He did not put this in his book, and I don't think he minds me telling this, but when I interviewed him, he said this creature was almost able to communicate with him telepathically, telling him that, you know, I'm basically here to kill you and there's nothing you can do. But uh, depending on how, when, Uh, these creatures arrived. Obviously, some form of this creature has been here for many years. I have to go back to the account, uh, and this is pretty well documented with some of the French settlers indicating that these creatures were there in the 1600s. Uh, I think they're very intelligent, but the thing that makes them stand out is if you take a wolf uh Uh, that has 100 times the ability to smell that a human does. Uh, this creature is going to know you're around before you ever know it's around. Uh, I think it's intelligent enough, like Bigfoot is, to where if it doesn't want to be seen, it's not going to be seen. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that the majority of people that go in to the land between the lakes will never see one of these creatures, never have a problem with one of these creatures. My theory is, and I'll tell you about an incident that occurred uh, last year, which is the latest known incident I know in this area. Uh, but uh, Martin Groves had uh, told me about this incident. Uh, but uh, if these creatures Uh, since that you're trying to move into their area and pitch a tent, put some kind of structure or something up, and they've got young ones there, there's always the possibility they're trying to protect these these young ones, just like any uh, uh, you know other creature would. Now there is evidence there is a breeding population. I go into this in my book down there because of some eyewitness accounts. One of these was uh, was a gentleman that was going through the land between the lakes on the on the main road through there, which is called the Trace. Uh, and he observed uh, a mother with the head of a wolf walking upright with three or four 
pups behind it uh, of these creatures walked in front of his vehicle. He put his brakes on and it turned and looked at him and it had a, uh, a wolf-like head. But there were three little creatures following behind this, obviously her offspring. Uh, he described this creature as being about six foot tall, not as big as the male creature, but obviously a female because it had its pups behind it. And they were literally making uh, making uh, dog-like noises only deeper. You know, uh, you could tell their diaphragm was a little bigger from an ordinary dog. And so there is credible evidence there is a breeding population of these creatures in there. And uh, to answer your question, my theory, and this is just my theory, is that these uh, animals are territorial. And, uh, you know, as you know, wolves live in dens. They have areas they consider their territory. Uh, if uh, another wolf from another pack runs goes into this territory, they can tell by the scent where they have scented these trees and different things. And if they proceed on into this territory, sometimes they they are literally killed or attacked by the pack. So I think there is this kind of behavior with these creatures. They consider certain areas their territory. And if you move in and attempt to set up some kind of permanent camp or tent or something like that, I think they are, it's, uh, they, you have a chance of, uh, you know, possibly being harassed or attacked by these creatures. There's not always someone killed with these things. If you persist in staying there, as the deer hunter did, or excuse me, the turkey hunter that I uh, described in Martin's book did for like maybe two or three nights, my theory is these creatures are going to uh, think that you're going to remain there for some time, and they may attack. Crazy. So back to the original story, what was the, the outcome? Uh, what kind of story did the officials present to the public? I mean, there were, were relatives and, and friends who have lost Nothing. someone. This story was covered up completely uh, because uh, park officials, for obvious reason, because there is a, a, a tourism into this area and hunting and uh, campers. Uh, the story was covered up on purpose, uh, so I've heard. Uh, if the story is true, and uh, as I said, I've talked to many eyewitnesses that I believe are credible. Uh, I do not know for a fact the story is true, but it was covered up. It was never made public. Uh, it, was, it was scraped under the rug. These campsites were destroyed basically bulldozed, bulldozed off the off of the uh, map and uh, nothing was done. Same with uh, same with Martin's story. Uh, Martin is a very credible uh, Martin Groves, as I showed you his book, who is one of the uh, witnesses I have interviewed. Uh, uh, his story was covered up. This was this was uh, later publicized as a mangy Bear attack <laughs> was the way that his uh, yes the the murder of this uh, bow hunter 
the turkey hunter was was uh, an unknown animal, probably a mangy bear, which there haven't been bear in the land between the lakes for well over a hundred years. Now, in order for bear to get in there, uh, they would have to go across several populated areas uh, to get in there. Now, there is a possibility there are a few bears in there, uh, but bears do not leave. Uh, they have a very distinctive print that they leave. And I have since, I'm going to be working on a second edition of my book. Uh, I don't know when it'll come out. It may be later uh, next year. Uh, but I have since interviewed several people. One of the people that I interviewed has been a trapper since he was 10 years old. His father taught him how to trap. He is and hunted in the land between the lakes. He's now, uh, you know, approximately 48 years old. But he's been trapping in there his entire life, and he's been hunting in the land between the lakes. Uh, I entered, uh, talked to him uh, about three months ago, and I'm in the process of interviewing more people who have had eyewitness accounts of these creatures. He describes a track while he was uh, squirrel hunting in the land between the lakes uh, that he could not identify. Now keep in mind, this man has been trapping. He knows what animals are there. He's been deer hunting. He's been bear hunting in other areas, uh, but he knows what a track looks like. He describes coming across a track that was a dog track. He said it was the largest dog track he had ever seen in his life. He said there are no dogs around here that can make that track. It had pads and it had claws in the front, very long. He's described this track as being approximately 10 inches. <laughs> and there are no known dogs that would make a 10-inch track around here. And uh, he was going to go back and get a, a picture of it, but unfortunately it rained the next day fairly heavily. And when he went back, the track was sort of washed out. It wouldn't have made a good uh, picture, but it's many, many uh, witnesses like this. I'm in the, pro uh, in the process of talking to you. And, and I, I know you guys are in Germany, but uh, if you happen to hear of any witnesses, I would be very interested in, uh, uh, interviewing them. I will give credibility to the, to anybody that talks to me. You know, uh, I'm not doubting anybody's word. That's the problem with a lot of witnesses is they, they're afraid of being uh, made fun of or criticized for coming out saying they've seen a track or they've seen a creature. But I would very much like to hear about that. And uh, uh, I uh, am trying to do as much research as I can on this subject Mm -hmm. So people, there you heard it. Um, please contact Steve if you know something. I am in Germany, but um, that doesn't mean that the show is only in Germany. So every the show will be aired everywhere. So yeah, if there's anybody out there uh, that knows something, please contact Steve. And before we wrap it up for today, thank you so much for sharing all these crazy, mind-boggling stories with me. It was very interesting. Is there something else that you want people to know? Maybe where they can find your book, maybe a homepage, or like you said, contact information? Certainly. Uh, my book, The uh, LBL Massacre, is available 
uh, on Amazon. Uh, it's available in Australia, Germany, France. It's available translated in, in all areas. And uh, it's the LBL Massacre. Uh, and I would be glad for anybody who wants to see this story in detail uh, to, to read it and give me their thoughts on it or their uh, feedback on it. Uh, I can be contacted at Steve Causey, that's S-T-E-V-E-C-A-U-S-E-Y, at AOL.com. So it's a very easy uh, uh, email address to remember. And uh, I certainly do appreciate you uh, interviewing me today and uh, listening to my story, which I heard many years ago. And uh, I uh, uh, think that... Uh, Everybody who hears the story, it's literally one of those stories that if you hear it for the first time, your mouth drops open. Indeed. Again, thank you so much for sharing your story. And um, please stay with me for two more minutes, okay? Yes, sir. Yes, sir.